the MBA is sometimes called the divorce degree <laughs> because it is such an intensive experience that that people who go in with spouses don't always come out with those spouses. And I think that was my first real experience of Ned being completely distracted. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, many entrepreneurs, especially aspiring entrepreneurs, have a romantic view of what the journey of entrepreneurship looks like. And while there is a lot of freedom, getting there may be a long and difficult journey. It's the struggle, as Ben Horowitz writes in his poem of the same title. It's a highly rewarding and beautiful struggle, but a struggle nonetheless. And it's easy for entrepreneurs to get laser focused on their mission and let everything else slip through the cracks along this journey. Our guest, Dorcas Chang Tozen, is an award-winning writer and speaker who explores the intersection of startup life with marriage, family, and well-being through columns and her great book, Start, Love, Repeat, How to Stay in Love with Your Entrepreneur in a Crazy Startup World. This isn't your average book about entrepreneurship. It's written from Dorcas's point of view as the veritable, quote, chief of staff, end quote, for her husband's entrepreneurial endeavors. And it offers an incredibly unique and insightful perspective on the entrepreneurial mind. It also teaches entrepreneurs an incredibly important lesson about bringing their spouses in, into their sphere of influence. Your spouse is a stakeholder in your business, just like an investor would be, just like a key business partner would be, and their buy-in is essential. Beyond that, they can be your cheerleader, your unique competitive advantage, encouraging you each step of the way. Build your business, do what you want to do, but don't forget about the rest of your life. Don't forget about the people in your life. Don't forget about what you love to do, the things that feed your soul and spirit that will enable you to survive these crazy ups and downs in the roller coaster ride of being an entrepreneur. This was a joy to host Dorcas at my office. I highly recommend that you go out and check her her book out, buy it on Amazon. Well, it's in the show notes. And in the meantime, bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Dorcas Chang Tozen, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Very excited to talk with you about your story and your book, Start, Love, Repeat, How to Stay in Love with your entrepreneur in a crazy startup world and this platform and mission 
this important work that you're doing. So welcome to the studio today because we're recording live and in person. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I am glad to be here face to face with you. Yes, it's it's a rare opportunity. 90% of my interviews are recorded remotely. They're pretty good because I use video and stuff so we can read each other's face and stuff. But when you're right next to the person, you know, it's, it's just a different level. Yeah. So we are going to dive into this very important topic today that I know my listeners will get a tremendous amount from. But let's be real. A lot of people have a romantic idea of what being an entrepreneur actually looks like, feels like, etc. And and there's a ton of freedom that actually does come with being an entrepreneur. But for the vast majority, the laptop lifestyle that everybody is dreaming of is actually a distant dream that comes after a long, hard slog. And I loved this quote from your book, and it was written by, I think, one of the founders of Netscape, who you interviewed. He calls the journey of entrepreneurship as a background. He calls it the the struggle. And he said, the struggle is when you're surrounded by people, but you're all alone. The struggle has no mercy. The struggle is the land of broken promises and crushed dreams. The struggle is a cold sweat. And when I think, I added at the end, okay, so I added, but there is beauty in the struggle. And there really is, because if you think about like anything, any form of growth in the natural order, whether it's going to the gym or just even growing up from from a kid to an adult, you have to go through growing pains and struggle. But along that journey, in that cycle, in that roller coaster of, of the entrepreneurship, I don't know if you've heard about the roller coaster of entrepreneurship, you've been on it, but there's an actual like chart and it says the phases are uninformed optimism informed pessimism, crisis of meaning. And after crisis of meaning, you either crash and burn or depending on your circumstances, you can pivot to informed op- optimism and then it continues to go, right? But what what ends up happening for a lot of people is they end up in the crash and burn. And that's indicative of some of the stats that you included in the book, which are, for example, 42% of entrepreneurs start a company before they've identified a business idea, and nearly half of the ideas change at least once. And then in the entrepreneurial pool, this one really struck me, 72% of entrepreneurs self-report that they have a mental health issue, 30% report dealing with depression, and 12% report substance abuse, right? And I actually think that that number is lower uh, than it actually should be. I, th- I think people are not necessarily owning some some of uh, what might be defined as substance abuse. But I, I just don't know if it has to be this way, right? I think that there's something more to it and not necessarily that something that we just have to accept this 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 journey at its face value. It is a struggle, but I don't necessarily think that we have to accept it as something that just is and something that we just have to deal with. I think it's something, and as you indicate through your work, it's something that we have more control over than we think about. So we'll kick it off there and then we'll get into some of your origin story. So what are your, some of your initial thoughts about people just accepting this as the way it has to be? Yeah, the the struggle that you quoted from was written by Ben Horowitz, and it's an excerpt from a much longer poem mm. that he wrote about the experience of being an entrepreneur. And I think anyone who has been through it could really resonate with it. And it is true. There are huge challenges and stresses 
along the route of building a business and they are inevitable and they are unpredictable and they will knock you over the head and put you in places that you never expected to be. But I think as you mentioned that through the hardship, there is so much opportunity Mm -hmm. that it is through that struggle, through pushing ourselves to our limits and beyond our limits that we learn so much about ourselves. Mm -hmm. We learn so much about the world around us. And I think it gives us the opportunity to become closer, to grow more toward the people that we were always meant to be. Mm -hmm. And that if you live a life of avoiding challenge, of avoiding hardship, of just traveling the well-worn path, you may not ever get there Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, becoming the fully realized version of who you are. Totally. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be coming up later next in July, actually. Uh, I'm going to be interviewing a a gal named Kara Miller. She's Dr. Kara Miller. She's a developmental psychologist. And we're going to be talking about the practice of becoming. And the thing that we get stuck in and we have been, I mean, this is kind of how we were trained. And it's one of the problems with the educational system as we know it today is, is that we're just caught up in the, in, the, in the go mode and in the do mode. And we forget about the becoming mode, right? And so anytime we face adversity, when we decide to step off the path of going and doing, we start becoming and we face adversity and challenge in that, man, we retract really easily. And, and unless you have the, the right type of community and support group and network around you, you're more prone to just the crash and burn. Yeah. And I think that's a real risk for entrepreneurs because the reality is there is always too much to do mm-hmm. and you will never get mm-hmm. it all done. And so it is very easy to fall into that mode of just constantly trying to stay on top of your to-do list mm-hmm. um, and forgetting about mm-hmm. the rest of life, mm-hmm. you know, sort of just narrowing your focus to this one thing mm-hmm. in my life. And I think that puts you at real risk for burnout, mm-hmm. for if something goes wrong with the business, which we all know there is a very, very high chance that that will happen, that you could feel like your whole life is destroyed, even mm-hmm. when that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And so I am very much an advocate for, you know, yes, pursue your dreams, build your business, do what you love to do, but don't forget about the rest of your life. Don't forget about the people in your life. Don't forget about the other things that you love to do, the things that feed your soul and your spirit Mm -hmm. um, that will enable you to survive these crazy ups and downs and the roller coaster ride Mm -hmm. of, of being an entrepreneur. Now, technically speaking, you're not an entrepreneur and your husband is, right? But really, what you, what ended up happening is you became his chief of staff. Yeah, maybe that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Without even necessarily being offered a role or any sort of commensurate salary to go right. along with it. Right. And I think that is the role that a lot of spouses and significant others of entrepreneurs find themselves in. Because you have this entrepreneur that you love who is so focused on this one mission that he has or she has in life that everything else can fall mm-hmm. through the cracks if there's mm-hmm. not somebody there to to help mm-hmm. pick that up. And and the the beautiful thing that you did with your book is it it comes from the lens of yourself as the spouse of an entrepreneur and really like you're on this hunt to figure out how to make everything work and to quote unquote find the balance but you're there is no such thing really but you do it in a very empathetic way because you understand, you do a lot of digging to help to try to understand the entrepreneurial mind and what's going on in their world. And without sacrificing 
who you are and the role that you play and the importance of and the primacy of your relationship above everything else. Yeah, I think one of the key lessons that I learned in the almost three years that I spent researching this book is the power of the concept of both and. And that can be applied to so many mm -hmm. things in life. But um, but for me, it was recognizing that my experience of being the spouse of an entrepreneur, which honestly was far, far more difficult than I ever thought it would be, was just as valid mm -hmm. as my husband Ned's experience of being an entrepreneur. And that we could hold both of those experiences together mm -hmm. and honor both of them, but also recognize that there, there can be tension between yeah. the two. And, and how do we figure out how to create space in life for mm -hmm. both of us mm -hmm. to flourish and to thrive mm -hmm. and to have it not only be about Ned's vocation and what he wants to do, but to be about both of us mm -hmm. and then about our growing family as well, because mm -hmm. we have two young kids. Mm -hmm. Speaking of family, let's go back in time to Dorcas, and she's around like age six or seven, maybe eight. When you think back to your childhood around that age where you're really conscious of your family and what's going on in the world and in your world and your little bubble, what do you what do you recall as being something that made your family unique or your family's rallying cry? I would say that the bubble I grew up in was rather small. <laughs> so I grew up in a suburb in the Bay Area. My parents were immigrants from Hong Kong. And so I think they were very much of the mindset of wanting to protect myself and my sister and keep us safe and, you know, keep us sheltered. And so my world revolved around family and school and church. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much it. I mean, I think I think that the there is so much richness in the immigrant experience that you don't fully understand mm -hmm. when you're a child. But I certainly appreciate the model of working really hard of putting family, if not first, very close to first, that that my parents um, showed me and and I think the importance of having something in your life to ground you, whether mm -hmm. that be religion or spirituality, but um, but something, some sort of North Star that mm -hmm. points you to um, what is most important in life, that it's not just about success. It's not just about doing well or making money or becoming famous, but but really, you know, on a deep, deep level, what is it that we need as people mm -hmm. and what is going to be keep us healthy and sustain us. And I will add that that, that bubble burst um, in a very significant way when I was 14 because my uh, my dad got sick and passed away uh, very soon after that. Mm. It, it all happened within about three months. Um, and so that uh, completely changed the trajectory of my life and opened me up to, you know, there is a whole world out there of grief and suffering and hardship. And it made me realize that that we need each other, that, that none mm -hmm. of us can do this mm -hmm. on our own, mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. this is a journey that we were designed to be in community mm -hmm. and to walk together with other people and to support one another mm -hmm. in our respective journeys. Mm -hmm. What was your relationship like with your dad up to his passing? So in one regard, um, my so I'm ethnically Chinese, and uh, my dad was fairly kind of your stereotypical Chinese dad. You know, didn't talk a lot, wasn't super physically affectionate, um, was very focused on supporting the family and providing for us. But I think my dad and I had a very particular bond, just in that we had a, a lot of similarities in our personalities. So we kind of got each other, even though we didn't necessarily always communicate 
that much. And so he and I would hang out a lot, read together. We both were avid readers. We would watch football together. He got me into football at a young age. And those sorts of bonding moments were, um, those are the things that I really remember even Mm -hmm. now, so many years later. Mm -hmm. And so when he passed away, it definitely felt like the the balance in our family um, was thrown askew because my my sister and my mom are of a more similar temperament, and then I was kind of left mm-hmm. um, hanging out there. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I, I think um, you know, and he actually had a little bit of an entrepreneurial tendency in in him as well, and and so I think maybe that was part of what really attracted me to somebody like Ned. Mm-hmm. You know, respecting that the person who who has all these great ideas and who um, lives by inspiration and is always willing to try new things and take risks. And I really admire that because I don't necessarily feel like I am that mm-hmm. kind of a person. But um, Well, but writing I, a book like this is, <laughs> is certainly true. a risk. It is true. I, I had to go to Ned for advice many <laughs> times through the process and pick myself up when things got very discouraging. But I think I have only been able to become a writer and write a book because of everything mm-hmm. that I've learned mm-hmm. from being married to an entrepreneur mm-hmm. and, and seeing how much satisfaction and fulfillment Ned gets out mm-hmm. of trying things that other people may not have the courage to try. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? You just you just proved. Okay, you just proved the first key of the book that I'm writing. When we were talking before we hit record, is own your story, right? Mm-hmm. So we all know our story. We know the things that have happened to us, right? And most people just stop there, and they don't do anything with it. They don't take ownership of it. They don't hold it up and look at it and appreciate it for the lessons that exist there. But you have. You've taken ownership of your story, all, you know, your, your dad's passing, your relationship with your mother and sister, the community, you know, college, your relationship with Ned, and you've just owned it the whole time. And now you're, you're giving it away, right? You're, you're turning it into something that is, is going to serve a lot of people and has the potential to, to save some, some people from themselves, you know, and it's really profound. Where did this belief, and maybe it's still developing, but where did this belief in your own gifts of writing and all of that stuff come from? I have always loved writing. And I actually started out as a professional in the nonprofit sector and worked there for about a decade doing community development, youth leadership development, affordable housing, which is a huge issue here in the Bay Area. And Even in those jobs, I was always finding excuses to write. So I was the person who was always volunteering to write the newsletter to donors or to write the um, grant reports just because I loved it so much and I wanted an excuse to do it. And then I started pursuing writing really seriously when I actually had to. It, to some extent, saved me because um, it's very much tied in with my story with Ned and his startup, which has been going for more than 10 years now. Um, we had actually moved to China in 2008 to build up the manufacturing operations for his company. And after about a year there, the experience was so challenging. I had actually joined the startup, so we were working crazy hours. We had absolutely no friends. We did nothing except work. And we were living in a foreign country where we didn't know how anything worked. And you know, even though I'm Chinese, my Mandarin is horrendous. So it, it was a very, very challenging experience. And, um, and then I just 
crashed and burned. And I fell into this horrible depression. And it took me months, I mean, really years, to be honest, to fully understand what had happened and how I had fallen so low so quickly. And, you know, as often is the case, there were a lot of things that uh, there were unhealthy patterns that I had been um, living for many years that really came to the fore when I was under so much stress. And and I got to the point where really all I could do was write. Mm. And I would fill pages and pages and pages of journals um, just asking myself, you know, what is going on? What is wrong with me? What happened? And then eventually those questions turned into the beginnings of trying to figure out answers. And um, and through that process, I recognized how powerful writing can be and how powerful storytelling can be, certainly for ourselves, for our own healing, but also in what we can share with others. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the most meaningful ways that we connect as human beings. And it is one of the most meaningful ways that we actually learn. You know, we can always quote statistics um, and data and research to one another, but ultimately what people remember the most are stories. Mm-hmm. And um, and so if you can harness your own story, like you were talking mm-hmm. about, like, and shape it and and share it in a way that um, that there are meaningful and powerful lessons that people can draw out of it, then it becomes so much more than mm-hmm. just a story, mm-hmm. right? It, mm-hmm. it becomes a way, a vehicle um, for people to grow and learn and develop and to begin to take steps toward mm-hmm. living healthier, more grounded lives. What are one or two things that you discovered about yourself through this journaling process? I discovered that I am a perfectionist, that I really struggle with people-pleasing, and that in entrepreneurship, those traits are kind of untenable Mm -hmm. (laughs) because there's always going to be people saying no to you. There is so much to be done so quickly that you can't do things perfectly. And so one of the most important lessons that Ned has taught me is the ability to let go and Mm -hmm. to recognize when something is important and when something is not important. And if it's not important, then you can move on from it or or recognizing when things are just, they're good enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. It's good enough mm-hmm. and you can go on from there. Mm-hmm. Now, fast forward, take us t- to Stanford. You, you That's where you went to school and that's where Ned went to school as well and where you guys met, right? Mm-hmm. So was Ned passing you notes in class or how did you guys meet? <laughs> we met as freshmen in college and we actually lived in the same dorm at Stanford. So we sort of knew of each other in passing and then... Winter quarter, we it's super, super nerdy story. We had a class together called Multivariable Calculus. <laughs> and Ned apparently had a crush on me, which I did not know. And he kept asking to study with me. And I kept saying no. Who is this guy who wants to study with me? And then finally, I said yes, because we had a midterm coming up. And I realized I needed help. <laughs> and Ned happened to be acing the class. And we had so much fun together studying, which I know sounds really strange that multivariable calculus does not seem like it would be fun at all, but it was to us. Mm-hmm. And we hit it off. We became best friends. And and then about six months later, started dating. And how, how long after that did he pop the question? Oh, it took a while because we were pretty young, yeah. you know, so we oh, were yeah. only you were, 18 you started dating when we freshman met. Year. Yeah. Okay. Did you date throughout so, yeah. college? Oh, wow. Yes. Did you guys ever break up? We never broke up. Wow. No. Except um, except that time when he became an entrepreneur and you were like, 
fine. <laughs> but I think by then I was in too deep. Yeah. <laughs> it was too late for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we got, let's see, we got engaged 98, we started dating, and then we got engaged in 2003. So yeah, five years later, okay. and then got married in 2005. Okay. So it's okay. Been almost My wife and I got years. married in 04. Okay. And yeah. we had our first in 05. Yeah. Oh, okay. We yeah. waited a lot longer. Yeah. <laughs> we have four kids now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. our first child was the business. Yeah. And we felt like we could not handle any yes. other human children yeah. after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Now, at what point in your dating relationship, in your courtship, did you're, you're kind of going along and you're, t- you know, study mates and boyfriend and girlfriend and all of a sudden, like, Ned's attention starts deviating toward this little thing called entrepreneurship. What happened? Well, there were really strong symptoms of it, even in college, but I don't <laughs> think either of us recognized it. Hmm. So Ned had this tendency to change his major pretty much every couple of months. Uh, so by the time we had graduated, I think he had been through at least a dozen, maybe more different majors. And these were wildly different majors. He was, you know, physics one quarter, then he was music, and then he was engineering, and he was chemistry, then he was pre-med. And, then, and, and I was not like that. I went into college knowing I wanted to study communications. That's exactly what I did. I stayed on track. I graduated with that degree. But he was just all over the place because he had no idea what he wanted to do. And that actually really worried me. So I loved Ned. I loved so many things about him. But the fact that he could not settle on one interest really worried me. I Hmm. thought that if we ended up together, that he might be one of those kind of like drifting people who never has a sense of who he is. But in reality, it just meant that he was an entrepreneur because Mm -hmm. he was so interested in everything. Mm -hmm. He wanted to learn about everything, and that's why he couldn't focus. And it actually took him a while to figure that out. So we graduated. He ended up taking on this audio engineering job, and then he quit after Mm -hmm. six months. It was this really stable, good-paying job, but he hated it. And he hated the idea of doing the same thing every day, of, you know, sitting quietly at his desk and being stuck in these meetings. And and so then that was when he experimented with starting his own businesses. And there were little things at first, like a little t-shirt screen, you know, business. And and then he got into um, doing some music, recording music, because he loves music. So he did some, you know, children's albums. But none of those took off. They were mm-hmm. all pretty small scale. And so then that's when he decided to go to business school because mm-hmm. he realized that he needed a lot more tools to to make a go of this, to, to very seriously pursue starting a business. And he recognized that he wanted to start a business that felt meaningful, that had some really um, big social impact. Mm-hmm. And, and he felt like going back to Stanford would be the the thing that would enable him to do that. So we got married in 2005, and then two months later, he started business school. So that was also really hard. You you may know that the MBA is sometimes called the divorce degree <laughs> because it is such an intensive experience that, that people who go in with spouses don't always come out with those spouses. Mm-hmm. And I think that was my first real experience of Ned being completely distracted mm-hmm. and me feeling like, I thought I married a flesh and blood person, but he is now turning into a ghost Mm. because I Mm. never see him. Mm -hmm. It's impossible to even have a meal together. Um, And that was really difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it it was that first sense of 
you know, because we had been so close for so many years throughout our dating relationship where it seemed like something else in life was much more important to him mm-hmm. than I was. Mm-hmm. And and that was painful. Mm-hmm. And it led to a lot of conflict mm-hmm. and a lot of tears. Well, there was one <laughs> point in particular where early in your marriage, I think it was the second Christmas in your marriage, that you were really excited and hopeful and looking forward to spending time with him as most couples would during the holiday season, but that's not exactly what happened. Right. So one thing I've learned is that the normal expectations you might have of a romantic relationship just don't necessarily hold true when you're with an entrepreneur. And and the sooner you can let go of those expectations, the easier it will be for everyone. So so that Christmas, um, you know, Ned and I had barely spent any time together for the entire semester that he had been in school. And, and so I was looking forward to that holiday as like, okay, we are finally going to actually be able to sit down, have a conversation, go see a movie. At that point, Ned was already beginning to work on the class project that would turn into his business. And he decided that Christmas was the best time for him to travel overseas to Myanmar to do some field research. And he somehow... I still don't totally understand to this day what happened, but he scheduled his flight so that he would leave as soon as the semester was over. And then he was not returning until the day after Christmas. And he booked his tickets. He told me his schedule and I just <laughs> fell apart because it it felt like in this case, he was making a very, very intentional choice of prioritizing his business over our relationship. And that I felt like I hadn't really been part of that conversation mm-hmm. of making that decision. Mm-hmm. And and that's another key lesson that we've learned over the years is, is that there are a lot of things that might feel like business decisions that it's really important to pull your partner into those conversations mm-hmm. because it affects them directly. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want it to do permanent damage to your relationship, then, then it is absolutely worth those mm-hmm. extra minutes or hours to sit down mm-hmm. and hash it out. That was an extremely disappointing and challenging time in our marriage. But I think it also kind of brought to the fore, you know, some of the things, some of the misses we had of, you know, for me, that time together was really, really essential. For him, he felt like, you know, we can hang out after I get back. Or, you know, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. There's going to be, Christmas is going to come around every year. Mm-hmm. And so we we realized, okay, there's actually, we've known each other for all these years, and yet there is still a lot more mm-hmm. that we need to figure out mm-hmm. about Joe. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. So what did you do in that moment? Did you? How did you guys deal with that? particular conflict. We did not deal with it well <laughs> at all. I mean, we were, you know, just a year and a half into our marriage. We were still relatively young. We also had not had that much conflict when we were dating. And so we 
weren't good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, we hadn't figured out how to talk about things well. Um, so we both got really defensive, both got really emotional, felt like, you know, the, uh, we weren't hearing one another, which I think was true. We mm-hmm. weren't. And and it felt, you know, Ned felt like there's nothing I can do. This is my only option. Anyway, so there was no easy resolution right. to that. It, it sort of just landed with this really ugly splat and then we just had to recover. And you that. bring up a really good point that that um, you didn't have a lot of conflict before or maybe you ignored the conflict before and people often make the mistake of thinking that no conflict is healthy and it's the exact opposite. Yeah. You know, I remember one of our family friends went through a divorce and people were like, wow, we just, we just never ever saw them fight. You know, we n- never thought anything would, and that's that's the issue, you know, yeah. is that conflict, if done in a healthy manner, right. is actually really good and could produce a lot of great fruit. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But I want to know about the fork in the road where you were like, listen, I've got all this experience. I need this for myself. I'm going to write this book. And I this book needs to be written, and I'm the one to do it. What was that moment? Where Where, where were you? What happened that you were like, I'm going to do that? And did you did you did you come up with the title immediately, or what was your working title, and how did that whole progression change? My working title was "How to Love an Entrepreneur," and <laughs> my agent and everyone else hated it. So, um, obviously, I could not stick with that title, and uh, the the. The title of the book came much, much later in the process um, when I had already written a third of it and we were getting ready to pitch it to mm-hmm. publishers. The impetus of the book, I think, really came after our first son was born. So this was in 2012. And everyone knows when you have kids, everything changes, mm-hmm. right? And so before then, we had kind of been able to make it work. It was hard. We had conflict. There were a lot of things we had to work through. There was definitely, you know, a push and pull between Ned's career and my career and what I wanted in the relationship and what he did. But we kind of muddled along. And then and then when you throw a baby in the mix, it just what we had done before didn't work anymore because anytime Ned traveled, anytime he worked long hours, that meant that I was on call that much more for mm-hmm. taking care of a newborn and mm-hmm. an infant. And and so he started traveling only two months after our son was born and he would leave for like two and a half weeks at a time and he would go overseas. And, and it was terrifying for me as a new mom to be left on my own with a baby to feel like if anything happened, it would take Ned at least 24 hours to get back home and, and I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it got to the point where it was completely unsustainable. And and I realized I need help. <laughs> this is not working. And, and our sort of, you know, ad hoc conversations here and there to try to make things work, that wasn't working either. We needed kind of a bigger picture, a bigger strategy of, of how are we going to make this marriage work, um, to raise children, to not have our children be totally screwed up, um, while also allowing Ned to pursue his business. Mm-hmm. How do we do it all together? Mm-hmm. And I could not see any way to do that. And at that point was also when I was very seriously 
beginning to pursue writing as a career. And Ned, to his credit, was 100% behind me. He was my biggest cheerleader. I think being an entrepreneur, um, he had absolutely no fear in mm-hmm. me pursuing a career that would probably result in no income um, <laughs> and, and very little success. But he was all for me doing it because he knew how important it was to me. He knew how much I loved it. And so I started by writing the story of our time in China. And then, you know, as I got deeper into it, realized like there's got to be something out there for people mm-hmm. like me, for the spouses of entrepreneurs who are really, really struggling, who don't know the answers to how do you have a career and a family and do what feels like the full-time job of supporting the entrepreneur that you love. And I went looking, there's a little bit out there, but there's really not much. Mm-hmm. And and so it kind of all just came together of, well, <laughs> I need this. It doesn't exist. And I'm a writer. So maybe, you know, I'm the one to do yeah. it. Yeah. And so I should just write the book that I wish I had mm. from the very beginning when Ned and I got married. And what was really fun about the whole process of writing the book was, all the people I got to talk to. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed about 70 different couples and talked to a bunch of marriage family therapists and executive coaches and psychologists and investors and got so many different perspectives on what are the greatest challenges that they've seen that entrepreneurial couples have? What have they seen that works and what doesn't? And and so my my hope in this book is, is that it draws on all of the wisdom of all of these people mm-hmm. who have been through a lot. Mm-hmm. And most of the marriages survived, some didn't. Uh, but in all of those stories, there is a lot to be learned mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Um, what does it look like to pursue your passion, um, but to also not sacrifice the people you love mm-hmm. and you know the rest of your, your life and the rest of who you are as, as part of that. And it there's it's a very rich book, and there's so much insight and wisdom in there from all of the the people that you did uh, in, engage in the process of writing this book. One of the things that just popped into my mind, and and it's a there's a voice out there that says, you know, when when the when things get tough in your marriage, just quit. You know, just just quit. You know, you guys aren't. He's got other priorities. You want you're going this way. He's going that way. Just quit. So why didn't you quit? Because I think that's the easy route. Yeah, and and I think it it can be very tempting. I think one of the interesting things about the entrepreneurial experience is when you have an entrepreneur in your life who is so deeply invested in his or her work, that can become their life. And the life that you are living as their partner can feel completely different. And so that distance, um, I almost think that that that's inevitable, that that naturally happens. It can very much feel like you are living separate lives and growing further and further apart. And so you have to intentionally work against that to mm-hmm. choose to remain with this person, to choose to continue to invest in your relationship. Mm-hmm. For me, the option to quit, it didn't come up because honestly, I still loved Ned too much to ever want to leave him. I mean, there were so many things that I loved about him and also what he was doing. So I've always had this kind of awkward love-hate relationship with his business. So uh, they provide solar-powered solutions for families that don't have access to electricity in developing countries. Beautiful mission. Phenomenal. Uh. And and so I, I love what they do. I love the impact that they're having on families all around the world. 
And I love being able to be a part of that in Mm -hmm. in big ways and small ways. And I love Ned for being so dedicated to something that is so meaningful. Um, And so I just, I didn't want to give that up. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to give up that sense of mission. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to give up on our relationship. And and I knew that we could make it work. And I think I I had hope also in the fact that um, I give a lot of credit to Ned for being willing to change. I think that's one of the hardest things that you see in relationships um, where people are struggling is oftentimes there is at least one, maybe two people who are so stuck in the patterns that they have been engaging in um, and are so wanting to believe that the way that they are doing things is right and correct that they don't want to change. Mm. And um, and when you have a partner who's unwilling to change, that's really really difficult. Mm -hmm. There are still things you can do, Mm -hmm. but it's extraordinarily difficult. Mm -hmm. But Ned had demonstrated to me that he was willing to make concessions. He was Mm -hmm. willing to make compromises. He had also been clear, even when he was making choices that were really hurtful to me, um, he still, like, without a doubt, I always knew that he was very, very committed to me that I was his person and mm-hmm. um, and his business was his business, but but in the realm of, of people, I was his person. And and so I knew that that he, you know, wanted this marriage and our family to to work as much as I did. You know, one of the things I, I actually really appreciated in the book too is the number of therapists that you included in the in the book. And it not just the the entrepreneur or the spouse, right? You actually had these outside experts that added flavor to the overall journey and the story. And, but that involves asking for help, right? And so we know that the struggle is real. We know that the struggle is very lonely for the entrepreneur, but also for the spouse. And yet there's this stigma of that, that we have, and it's so wrong about asking for help. And when you ask for help, forget like this, it's a Paolo Coelho quote from the alchemist, like the universe conspires to, to come to your aid basically, you know? And yet we have this, this, this aversion to asking for help, but there's so much power in it. What did you learn in your own journey about the power of asking for help? Yeah, I think the entrepreneurial journey, it's sort of the epitome of the American dream, right? Of the pull yourself up by your bootstraps pursue your dreams, make it all happen. And and I think that mindset can make it really hard mm-hmm. to ask for help. And we have this pervasive sense, I think especially in American culture, that that asking for help is the same as admitting weakness. Mm-hmm. And the reality is that asking for help is an act of courage. And it's an act of, of love and self-love and and what I learned is none of us can do this alone. And I think especially if you are an entrepreneur, if you are married to an entrepreneur, um, you cannot do this alone because mm-hmm. the it is a Herculean effort mm-hmm. to to build a business from scratch and then to have what is hopefully a healthy marriage and family on top of that. It, it's not something that any one person mm-hmm. can do. You need wisdom from other people. You need practical help. You need emotional support. Um, and so I found that in the process of asking for help, it actually opened up these new opportunities for relationships with with friends and mentors that I would not otherwise 
have had. And mm-hmm. it has really enriched my life. There is some humbling that happens in the process of admitting that you cannot do it all on your own mm-hmm. and that you need other people in it with you. But I think that's actually a really healthy thing. Mm-hmm. And and when you have people around you, you can go so much further mm-hmm. and do so much more and be so much more impactful in the world because it it makes you a healthier, more well-rounded mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly would not have gotten to where I am today, still married to Ned, you know, with two kids that hopefully aren't too screwed up with, you know, this book out, except that I had so many people cheering me on mm-hmm. and stepping in to provide practical help and um, and giving me the the opportunity to to explore the the different things in life that that I loved and I was passionate about. And I think it just makes all of us stronger mm-hmm. when we bring our gifts and abilities and and passions together. Mm. I love that. You know, and it all boils down to communication at the end of the day. And one of the biggest gaps that I've experienced in my own relationship with my wife when I've uh, had ideas and started to run with them without necessarily bringing her on board is is how to navigate the process of connecting the dots in, in the communication framework of, I have this idea and now I need to bring my spouse on board with the vision and get their feedback and anxieties and concerns. So in your uh, research and in your own experience, what, what did you discover or uncover uh, is like the best process to bring your spouse or significant other on board with your vision in a way that, that that's healthy and promotes not only what you're trying to achieve, but also elevates your relationship. Mm-hmm. I think it is really important to know that your spouse is a stakeholder in the business, just like an investor would be, just like a key business partner would be, that their buy-in is really essential. Mm. And one thing that Ned did really well is in the beginning, um, when they were just getting started, when he, you know, was wanting to to go full time with his startup. So he actually gave up a really excellent job at Google to start his business. I was super excited about all the benefits <laughs> that we were going to get, um, but he gave that all up because he wanted to pursue this business. And then, not that long after, we ended up moving to China for the business. And in each of those key steps, he sat me down and he pitched to me like I was an investor. Mm. So he walked me through why did this matter so much? Why did he think it was worth the effort? What did he think were the chances of success? Mm -hmm. And what did he think the impact could be? Mm -hmm. And that was really meaningful to me because it let me know that he saw me as a Mm -hmm. partner in this decision. Um, it let me know that he respected me enough to to really want my buy-in, that he was going to work for it, and, and that he wanted to hear my input. He wanted to figure out how do we make this business work in the context of also having this relationship and having other things going on in our lives. And so I think that that mindset is a really key place to start mm-hmm. because entrepreneurs who have supportive significant others by their side, it's a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. It's um, I had one entrepreneur tell me she felt like it was a competitive advantage, that that she has this 
you know, this cheerleader, this coach, this, you know, unconditional supporter in her corner that that can encourage her each step of the way. And and you're not going to find that almost mm-hmm. anywhere else, mm-hmm. right? Business partners can come and go. Investors can come and go. But but your spouse, your partner, hopefully is going to be there through everything. Mm-hmm. And they know you better than anybody mm-hmm. else. And so they can, you know, one investor had the great quote where he he said, you know, you're the most important thing that your partner can do is to pull you away from the cliff when you are about to step off. Mm, mm. And I think that that's, that's something that um, that spouses do mm-hmm. for their entrepreneurs because they have a different perspective. They can, um, it's a little bit easier for them to step back and see the broader picture of, you know, does this business, does this pursuit continue to make sense mm-hmm. in the context mm-hmm. of our, our marriage and our family and our personal lives and our personal mm-hmm. health? Mm-hmm. And are you going down a path that is going to be Mm-hmm. For me, one question was always, you know, if Ned continues down this path, are we really going to be able to grow old together? Or is he going to give himself a heart attack by the time yeah. he's the age of 45? Yeah. You know, and, and so I think that that, that is a, a really important role that that the spouse can play in um, in making sure that, that your entrepreneur is okay, mm-hmm. that they're mm-hmm. taking care of themselves, that they are doing their business in a way that is sustainable. And I think when it comes specifically to communication, I think empathy is so, so important of recognizing where the other person is coming from. So for the entrepreneur, recognizing the the impact and the risk and the stress mm-hmm. that, that their spouse is going to be taking on, it is not a solo venture. It Any business, I believe, is a family venture, whether mm-hmm. or not mm-hmm. your spouse is directly involved in the business. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Research has shown that stress is contagious. Mm-hmm. And, and so you just have to be around a stressful person and you pick up on all mm-hmm. of that. And mm-hmm. so if if the entrepreneur is super crazy stressed, then their spouse is going to be super crazy yeah. stressed. And if the entrepreneur is always working and not spending any time with the family, then, then it's the spouse who's going to have to take care of the kids, mm-hmm. pick up all the pieces and sort of be the caretaker mm-hmm. of the marriage mm-hmm. and, um, and ensure that... Mm-hmm. that they're still investing in it that um, that the marriage is still still able to to float above water, and then I think you know being specific, which mm-hmm. is so hard for entrepreneurs because there are so many unknowns, there are so many things so that many can unknowns. change all the time. But as much information as you can provide, and and I would say with the caveat of you know don't overwhelm your spouse because there are some <laughs> spouses that don't want to yes. know everything, everything, and that's okay. Yes, um, but. But to be really clear of, you know, these are the goals, these are the milestones I'm working toward, and this is what I hope is the timeline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are those initial conversations, especially when you are starting a business. And a lot of those conversations also need to be around finances. Mm-hmm. That's a huge one for, for couples is, you know, do we have any savings? What is our monthly household budget going to be? What changes do we need to make to our lifestyle to actually not go bankrupt? Um, and to not lose our house, which has absolutely happened to a lot of entrepreneurs. Yeah. And um, and so you need to have those conversations. You need to plan together mm-hmm. ahead of time. Mm-hmm. There are also couples that say, you know, hey, we are comfortable taking this risk for six months. We have six months of runway in terms of our finances. And then let's reevaluate 
you know, and and so I think it's so helpful to have those those milestones, mm-hmm. those goals that you're mm-hmm. trying to meet, mm-hmm. and and then to check in regularly, yeah. maybe monthly, maybe quarterly, every six months, depending on you know what what you guys agree to and what makes the most sense for you. Um, but to circle back and and to have that ongoing dialogue mm-hmm. of is this continuing to make sense mm-hmm, for us? Mm-hmm. Can we continue to pursue this? And I think the other thing, the other side of the coin too, is that one of the one of the things that holds entrepreneurs or creatives or whatever back from bringing people on board with the vision, the spouse in particular, is that they spend so much time hearing the word no or, or being rejected that they just cannot imagine hearing those words or feeling rejected from the most important person in their life. And so what do they do? Naturally, they avoid, right? It's like it's one of the breakdowns of communication is, is avoidance. And so I think one of the most important things that the recipient of the vision of the pitch can do is communicate how much they believe in the person, not necessarily, not necessarily the idea, right? Because maybe they really think the idea is terrible, but how much they believe in the person. Yes, I completely agree. I think that those those two things need to be separated out. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, maybe I have questions about the business that you're pitching to me. Maybe I have some serious concerns, but that is a separate thing from my confidence. In, in your abilities, mm-hmm. in your passions, in knowing what you are able to accomplish. I think that that unconditional support, love, care, encouragement is absolutely essential. And, and that can be hard sometimes mm-hmm. for spouses when you're looking at, you know, who knows how many years of an uncertain income um, or of your life going crazy. You know, moving is something that's very common among entrepreneurs. So you're could be moving every year, could be pulling your kids out of school, you could be sacrificing a lot, maybe putting your own career on hold. And in light of all those things, I think it's very easy to become paralyzed mm-hmm. by fear and um, and to then, you know, go down that path and and forget that first and foremost, it's about one another, mm-hmm. that, that you guys are there for each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that in an ideal world, you know, you should both be supporting one another's professional dreams mm-hmm. as much as possible. Um, I think another part of the conversation that that is important to mention is um, to recognize that there's not only just one way to start a business. Mm-hmm. And so, if if you guys are in a point where you know, let's say you have a baby on the way, or you're financially strapped, or something else is going on, like a health crisis. There, um, for me, I have found that the question is more often not around what your entrepreneur is going to do, but it's more when they're going to and how they're going mm-hmm, to do it. You know, mm-hmm. can is there a way to kind of do a slow ramp? Yeah. Up, you know, have you ever read the book Visioneering by Andy Stanley? No. You need to read that book. You will love that book. It is a phenomenal book, and and he asks a ton of questions. And it's a great resource for anybody who is trying to figure out what they're called to do and what they're trying to create and also how to communicate that to other people and and adapt on the fly. You know, this has been we've barely scratched the surface practically in the last, you know, 50 minutes or so. And and unfortunately, 
we have to begin to wrap up. But this people need to go out and and buy this book, Start, Love, Repeat. I want to give you the opportunity to tell people where they can go to buy that. And then I have some uh, some final questions for you. The book is available wherever books are sold. So you can find it online. You can find it in your neighborhood bookstore, assuming you still have a neighborhood bookstore. Um, <laughs> and we'll link to it in the show notes as well. Yes. And it um, it's available as a hardback and an audiobook and an ebook. Did you read the audiobook? I did not. Oh, you got a narrator. Okay, cool. Now, as we begin to wrap up with these last few questions, I want you to start thinking about a call to action that you're going to give to people at the end of the show. So let that be in, in your mind. So the first of the last three questions before the call to action is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess, okay, something that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I think I would have to go with the skill of communication. Like, mm. if I could just know exactly what I needed to say whenever I needed to say it to whomever I needed to say it, that is pretty, mm-hmm. that would be a pretty incredible mm-hmm. superpower. Totally. <laughs> I totally agree with you on that. Now, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing our full potential? Three lies. So what are lies that you told yourself that prevented you from becoming who you are becoming? That I should already have it all figured out. That if I'm going to do something, I have to do it really well. Um, and that I need to figure it out by myself. Hmm. I think those have all been things that have held me back. I love that. Those are powerful too. And those are probably things that you realized in your in your journaling process, which you ended up turning into this phenomenal book. The last question is originally comes from the title of a of a book by a guy named Clay Christensen. And he wrote a book called How Will You Measure Your Life? And that is the that was how I asked the question, but I've recently modified it. I was watching this video of this guy going through the Louvre in in uh, Paris. And I started to see all of these statues and these monuments, right, that people made of some mythical people and some real people, you know, hundreds of years after they passed, right? And so, in essence, these artists have have measured these people's lives in monuments. So, with that in mind, if you were to leave a note for an artist to discover this, he discovered this note 300 years from now. And it was instructions on one or two ways that you would like to be depicted in a monument. What might that look like? I think it would be something about relationships, about being open to connecting with others and learning from others and wanting to find meaning and purpose from those connections. Mm, mm, I love that. I love that. Dorcas, this has been an incredible conversation. Now for the last thing, which is the call to action, the thing that you want listeners to go to do immediately after, as soon as they have an opportunity after listening to this episode. You know, we didn't even have time to really get into talking about strategies Mm -hmm, for the entrepreneurial couple that's struggling. And so 
So I would say one really helpful. Maybe we could do a part two. That's true. And that I know you're going to be over overseas. I am moving overseas again, again for the business. More again. prepared, more prepared. <laughs> but I'm going to commit to you right now. We will do a part two. I would love that. Specifically covering the strategies and it'll be very more tactical. Yeah. So so what, one thing that I've learned in my research is that small things really matter in a relationship. And um, and every entrepreneur has very limited time, has very limited energy and attention. But you really don't have to do that much to let your partner know that you're thinking of them, that you love them, that you want to be there for them. And, and so whether you're the entrepreneur or the spouse, or you're both a little bit of both, I would encourage you to think of, you know, brainstorm a list of five to 10 small things that you could do for your partner on a daily basis um, or one thing a day <laughs> um, that would really make them feel loved. Mm-hmm. And it could be as small as, you know, taking out the garbage without being asked, giving them a hug, you know, holding their hand, asking to go on a walk with them. Those small things actually really, really matter. And they they say a lot mm-hmm. to your partner. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so even if you guys are having a hard time um, if you can find a way to reach out, to take the initiative, to say in words or actions, I love you, you're important to me, I see you, um, that is mm. really going to help mm. you along as mm. you guys try to figure out all the other big questions and challenges and struggles you're wrestling with. I love that. There's a beautiful African word, named, it's Ubuntu, and it basically means loosely that I am because you are. And so it acknowledges your humanity, right? And it's a really powerful way to just level set everything. You know, like, you know, in order for me to be, you have to be. And we have to acknowledge each other for who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Dorcas, this has been an incredible conversation, part one of what will be part two. And uh, we'll get into the strategies, into the nitty gritty next time. So thanks for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact. Impact.